Welcome to With Deadly Force. I'm Scott Reitz. And I'm Brett McQueen. And this is the very first interview which we are going to conduct on our podcast. And we have an incredibly, uh, not only impressive, but longtime friend uh, and guest by the name of Lee McMillian. And to give you a little background on him, if I were to go through his entire CV, it would literally take up this entire program. So I'm going to give our listeners a very breveted uh, CV, which is curriculum vitae, for those of you who don't know, or biography. And Lee has now, uh, coming up next week, 32 years with Los Angeles Police Department. 22 of those are in the Metropolitan Division, which is a specialized division within LAPD, and 20 of those in SWAT platoon, and he's held four different ranks within SWAT. His experience with SWAT is absolutely amazing. If you look at the fact that LAPD SWAT averages approximately 100 spontaneous incidents and approximately 30 pre-planned incidents per year, uh, he's probably responded to, if you just went to one-third of those, probably over 850, but realistically, he's probably over 1,000 SWAT deployments in his career, which was absolutely amazing if you think about it. Um, he worked initially Rampart, Southeast, 77 Newton, and, of course, Metro. Formal education, uh, he does have a bachelor's in political science with an emphasis in international relations and international security. He also holds a master's in public administration from USC, which we will not hold against him being Bruins. He has a Fulbright Research Fellowship, which is absolutely eye-watering. Uh, he lived in Northwest London from September of 2011 to March of 2012. He's researched critical incident response and their counterterrorism measures, which they employ in England. He was embedded with London's Metropolitan Police Services, SFO, which is the Specialist Firearms Officers, the Counter-Terror Wing, CTW, of the Special Air Service, SAS, some of you have probably heard of that, at Sterling Lines, Hereford, at West Yorkshire Armed, also with West Yorkshire Armed Crime Tactical Team, SFOs, and Police Service Northern Ireland, uh, PSNI, which are the Headquarters Mobile Support Unit, HMSU, the Northern Ireland Hostage Rescue Asset. And he was also very fortunate in the timing of his Fulbright Research Fellowship to be doing that as a buildup to the 2012 Summer Olympic Games in London. So he's really got a lot of firsthand experience. And I will tell you from my personal experience, having known Lee for many, many years, he is uh, really a remarkable police officer and an incredible leader and uh, supervisor. So with that, I'm going to have Lee McMillian come on with us. And Lee, thank you so much for being here this morning. And on behalf of Brett and myself, I will thank you very much for being here, and this is very special to have you as our very first guest ever on With Deadly Force. Good morning, Scott, and good morning, Brett. Good morning. Uh, it's truly my honor, um, and I'll say that I think you've completely overstated my curriculum vitae, but uh, but I'll just keep those stats, and, and uh, I appreciate the, the, uh, the lead-in. Absolutely. So I think for our listeners, um, we've got a series of questions that we're going to go through and topics we're going to discuss kind of a free-flowing in nature, but could you please explain to our listeners what is SWAT's overall mission? So uh, at, the, at the risk of stating the obvious, SWAT is an acronym for Special Weapons and Tactics. And contrary to what the media and Hollywood depicts, SWAT is a life-saving organization. SWAT deploys to incidents with, with equipment and training that's beyond the capabilities of traditional police resources. So at the end of the day, SWAT provides a service 
to other law enforcement entities. Now, I can't speak for all SWAT teams, but I'll speak for LAPD SWAT. And we respond to primarily four types of incidents. Uh, those are armed barricaded suspects, hostage rescue, suicidal subjects, and service of high-risk search warrants. Outstanding. Um, I know that in my time in SWAT, which was 81 to 91, that SWAT has always continued to evolve. And the capabilities which you individuals today in D-Team possess is, to me, absolutely astounding. Uh, you have waterborne assets. You've got breachers and climbers. You have uh, emergency medical technicians capable. Uh, the less lethal options which you possess in this day and age are absolutely, they were unheard of. They, they hadn't even come around or been invented during my time. The CMT, crisis negotiation talks, obviously have come a long, long way. Uh, the advanced equipment, uh, some of these guys open up their trunks when I'm on the range and you look at them and they've got uh, oxygen tanks for working and biological suits that so they can work in uh, highly contained uh, environments. Uh, the dive team itself being able to do waterborne assaults. Um, all of this that you guys have arrived to at this day and age is remarkable. And if you could just touch on that, um, how you continually evolve, you test and you continually moving forward to ensure that LAPD SWAT is not only at the you know cutting edge, but also at the forefront of a lot of innovative technology, which allows you to complete your mission in, in, in a much more capable manner. So I, I guess to, to appreciate where we are now, we, we have to acknowledge uh, where we started. And uh, we owe everything we have to those that, that started this concept and they, and they built those layers along the way. So I, I'd like to start off with just like going back to how, how SWAT started. Right. Um, the concept of SWAT originated with former Los Angeles Police Chief Daryl Gates. Uh, it was followed following the 1965 LA riots, uh, and also in that time frame, I believe it was August of '66, was Charles Whitman and the Texas Tower incident, and there were a few other very provocative incidents that occurred throughout the United States and throughout the world. And so, with that in mind, uh, former Chief Daryl Gates had this this concept of, of SWAT. So SWAT's first roll call was in late December of 1966, although we claim 1967 as our start year because it was only a few days until 1967 hit. So it started off as an ancillary responsibility. So officers had their regular duty assignments throughout the city. So they might be patrol cops, detectives, uh, any, any variation on, on a theme. And once per month, they'd get together and they would train. And the original capabilities were what at the time were called long rifle observers. It was before... Uh, law enforcement actually uh, identified that, that they had snipers. And those were used for station defense. And then there were entry teams to handle barricades. Uh, and if you consider the time frame, it was the Vietnam era. So many of the original personnel were Vietnam vets. So there was no formal selection process. And the part-time team profile, that remained in place until November of 1971. So if you consider from December of 66 to November of 1971, so just shy of five years, there were 176 men who participated in that original profile. And those are the ones that, that really established the, the future of SWAT. Now, in November of 1971, uh, after um, several very, very successful incidents, it became a full-time platoon out of Metropolitan Division with the designator of D platoon. So since November of 71 until now, and, and every operator is assigned a number, there have been 392 officers assigned to our platoon. So, uh, Scotty, as a, as a cool point of trivia, you're actually number 205. 
So you're 205 out of 392 to huh. date. Cool. <laughs> um, so, so our platoon, our platoon is comprised uh, of six squads uh, of 10 officers each. So we got 60, uh, 60 officers, um, and each squad, each 10 officer squad, is led by a sergeant. So we have six squad leaders, and then we also have an additional sergeant for, for backfill. And then there's also two lieutenants. And that there's two lieutenants for for many years. There was one lieutenant, and at some point they determined one guy can't stay awake that much. So there's myself and, and my partner, uh, Lieutenant, is Ruben Lopez. Uh-huh. As, as to capabilities, all of our personnel are traditional entry team members. And after a year in the platoon, officers can choose to specialize in various disciplines. And this is where it gets into, you talk about all the gear that you see in the back of the cars at, at, uh, when you're up at the range. So, so these various disciplines, but this is in addition to their basic responsibility as an entry team member. So I know there are some teams that like, if you're a sniper, that's all you do is snipe, but that, that, that's not the way it is with us. So I'll, I, I can go through the, the, the various cadres here and I'll kind of just give you some of the, the overview on them. And, and you mentioned crisis negotiators. So in our basic course, um, all officers attend a 40 hour crisis negotiation. Uh, it's just a, a basic course. Um, and that, but that's within our, that's 40 hours within our 12 week basic. And every one of our personnel, all 69 of us, uh, have that 40-hour crisis negotiation basic, although 22 of those 60 officers are actually dedicated negotiators. They go through additional training, and it's actually a responsibility of theirs that they'll, they'll uh, actively uh, conduct during, during crisis incidents. Uh, you mentioned snipers. We have 20, 22 of our personnel are, are snipers. Lead climbers, uh, we have 20 of them. You mentioned tactical divers. So 15 of our guys are, are proper closed-circuit rebreather divers. And for those who don't know, the city of L.A. has 52 miles of coastline, which includes Port of Los Angeles, San Pedro, uh, on up through Venice Beach. So simply put, they just bring SWAT to the water. And there's no there's no special dispensation for how they use force or, or otherwise. Um, they are law enforcement officers with SWAT capability that bring it to the water. We have explosive breachers, uh, 22 of them, and each of them has a proper Cal OSHA blasting license. Uh, you mentioned the Kim Bio suits. So the contaminated environment cadre, all of our personnel have FCBAs, a self-contained breathing apparatus, and the contaminated environment cadre are the guys that maintain the gear and they also put on training so that everyone remains current and can actually use those, those pieces of gear in, in a crisis incident without, without having to fumble with it. Uh, emergency medical technicians, we only have six EMTs, but that's because our, uh, our medical response now has gone primarily to the fire department. So we have 12 LAFD paramedics that go through a TAC medic course. We put them through a modified SWAT course. Uh, they, they don't carry guns, uh, but they, uh, they, they understand our gear. Uh, we have at least two of them on every single thing we do, whether spontaneous or pre-planned. And then uh, we also have a local emergency room trauma doctor that very generously volunteers her time to our platoon for sustainment training for uh, not only our TIMS medics, but also our EMTs. Then uh, firearms training cadre. Obviously, we have to have personnel within our platoon that that train our all of our folks in marksmanship manipulation of the various weapon systems we deploy. We have a defensive tactics cadre. They do all of the test and evaluation of lethal tools as well as uh, chemical agents and weaponless defense. Electronics technicians. And this is where SWAT has changed so much over the years. And and back when you were a SWAT cop. Uh, probably very little by way of electronics. Well, now a lot of what we do is with robots and pole cameras and various electronic devices and just make it safer for our personnel. And then um, something also uh, a very recent addition to our platoon 
is the UAS cadre or unmanned aerial system or drones. And we have 12 properly licensed FA-107 pilots, if I, if I use the word pilots. So, so we work in four-week deployment cycles. And during each of, of these deployment cycles, each of those disciplines that I just mentioned are trained. And officers have to remain current in all of their chosen disciplines to remain deployable at field incidents. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get too much into the, the various cadres if I'm going to eat up too much of the time here talking uh, specifics. But I'm, I'm I'm happy to answer questions about obviously all those cadres as well. No, I think uh, from my standpoint, uh, it, it's it's absolutely amazing the progress that we've made. If you remember the 1970s show that um, SWAT and you know the guys would come out and the one thing they had they had the hats on backwards, they had the shiny jumpsuits they had the sam brown with a revolver on it they always had a, everybody had a canteen no spare ammo no flashbangs no uh, lights or anything else but boy you better have that canteen on and uh, it, you know of course everybody drove around in a van you waited around the station the whole day uh, until you got that call up so <laughs> what you're explaining here and what you're describing here is literally a galactic leap in capability and knowledge, understanding, and training, and it's really, really something. And Brett, I'm going to turn this over to you. Hi, Lee. How are you? Hi, Brett. You. Thank Great you for doing. Well. Thank you. What What are the qualifications and the processes necessary for these guys to or women to gain admittance into the team? So um, the, the baseline is they have to have at least four years of field time as an LAPD officer. Then they'll submit an application with their ratings and their work history. And they have to submit a, a certain minimum score on a on a pistol qualification course. And, and for, for those who are institutionalized, it's a 365 on the bonus line. And that's the minimum for, uh, for pistol uh, proficiency, uh, just to even start the process. And then they'll take a physical fitness qualification, or what we call a PFQ. And we have some very doable minimum scores. It's a mile and a half run and under 1230. It's 40 push-ups, obviously uninterrupted, 60 sit-ups and five pull-ups. So very, very doable, minimal uh, qualifications physically. Then they're going to complete an obstacle course wearing a tack vest, a pistol belt, and a ballistic helmet. Then they're going to take a pistol manipulation test, uh, the basics, loading, unloading, malfunction clearances. They're going to complete a series of scenarios in the force option simulator. They're going to do some scenarios in, the, in Hogan's Alley. And then they're going to do what's called a discretionary engagement exercise. And, uh, and, and the big hint on that one is don't shoot the hostage. So those who pass these tests will then take an oral, they'll get an oral interview. And then those who receive an outstanding on the oral interview will undergo a background check to confirm how they work as a team member, uh, their work ethic, uh, their, their reliability. And then with information gathered from the backgrounds, the chain of command will determine plus or minus 12 personnel to attend the basic 12-week course. So during the 12-week course, uh, the first four weeks are all firearms training. And then, so that'll be obviously a pistol, carbine, shotgun. There'll be a chemical agents course in there. Then the second four weeks are all movement. It's a little methodical, uh, warrant service, uh, dynamic, uh, dynamic movement as well. And then um, during those eight weeks, there are a series of tests that must be passed. So once you get first through the first eight weeks of the basic course, if you've made it through those that, that, that portion, you should be very good to go. And there's, there's very few things that can, that can uh, cause uh, stumbles thereafter. But um, so now the third and final four week phase, uh, as I mentioned previously, there's a 40 hour crisis negotiations course, 
which is, is, you know, everybody passes that. Um, and then there are, there are additional training evolutions to confirm that selectees are comfortable working around all of the environments that we're going to work in. So they're going to work around the water. They're going to work at heights. They're going to work in confined spaces. And so uh, the only ones that are going to be deselected from that point are if they're aquaphobic, acrophobic, or claustrophobic. So we run selection about every two years. Um, in 2018, 84 started the process. We put 14 through the 12-week course, and we graduated eight. So it it really came down to about 10% of those who, who start the process uh, finish it. Um, and then once officers graduate from the course, they're placed in a squad, and they actually start working SWAT. This is called phase two, though. So for, for the next six months in the platoon, uh, they're evaluated to confirm how they work in the day-to-day life of the SWAT element number. And once they, they confirm all that after six months, then you're a bona fide LAPD SWAT cop. So, uh, you know, Lee, as a lieutenant, you, you know, you've been through the whole gamut. You've been an operator, uh, in there, a righteous operator. You've been an instructor, uh, sergeant, sergeant two, working now as a lieutenant. But the amount of training that goes in in SWAT, I know during my time, uh, LAPD traditional, well, LAPD has 13 deployment periods, DPs. And each one of those broken up into 28 days on an average when I was in D-team especially for the 1984 Olympics, we would spend almost half of our time training. And since I was a long rifle uh, at that time, uh, you've got at least four additional days on the range back then. And I was wondering if you can describe the intensity and amount of training, which, and you've kind of touched on it, but which an officer undergoes for, say, that 28-day, say, in a single 28-day duty period time. If you could let our listeners know just what kind of training really goes into this to make these guys as special as they are? So, uh, so we're talking about recurrent training uh, with the platoon, and, and it's it is it is ongoing. So, LAP, as you mentioned, uh, our, our department works in four week deployment periods, twenty eight days. So, we, we break up those uh, that four week period into um, into various sections. So, the first week of every deployment period is called what we call it's our basic or what we call our core disciplines week and that's where we every the whole platoon trains together everybody that is uh is working that deployment period everybody works that entire week and that's uh weapons marksmanship manipulation and variations of team movement and like i said from slow methodical uh we can uh, move up into dynamic movement uh working behind explosive breach uh, all those basics of of swap movement now, the following three weeks are where it gets divided into those those uh, various disciplines that, that I mentioned previously, and they're, or the, what we call the cadre training days. So, for instance, snipers are going to shoot out of the helicopters every other Tuesday. Uh, every other Thursday, the snipers are going to be on the range, and they're going to train in the other aspects of sniping, whether it's UKD, uh, urban and rural hides, Calcan Place, et cetera. Uh, divers in the port for two of those days, uh, climbers, EMTs, electronics techs, the SCBAs, all of those get trained during that four-week period. And then for the next four-week period, uh, rewind, repeat. So for training scenarios, uh, which we do a, lo- a lot of scenario-based training, we debrief and recreate incidents we've been involved in to help us do things better. Because there's no such thing as a perfect run. And then we also recreate provocative incidents that other teams have been involved in. So we have, we have great relationships with our law enforcement counterparts, not only throughout the U.S., but throughout the world. And so as we, we hear of these things through, uh, through friends in the community or we see them in the news, we make contact we, uh, with them, we find out what happened during those incidents, and we, we recreate them so that we can better prepare for when something similar hits us. And then we rotate training responsibilities between our element leaders. So of our 60 personnel, 12 are element leaders. 
And so as the element leaders are responsible for putting on training, it creates this healthy competition uh, between them so that the training remains valuable. So at the end of the day, you don't want to be that element leader that puts on crap training. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's well stated. Very, very, very well elucidated. Uh, let me ask you this. You know, I've trained throughout the United States, uh, throughout Europe, been over there training in Italy, Greece, France, Switzerland, Spain. Uh, and LAPD SWAT has a reputation and whether it's deserved, undeserved, uh, how in your eyes and from what you've experienced has LAPD SWAT impacted some of the units uh, established not only in the United States, but throughout the, uh, the world? So we're very fortunate to have very strong relationships with teams throughout the world, both tactical law enforcement as well as military. And so we host uh, teams uh, literally about every deployment period. We will have some folks from some team somewhere um, that will will spend time with us. And um, we some of them, they'll weave into our training and they'll do the scenarios with us. Others, we just provide the our, our venues for them and, and we facilitate. But at the end of the day, we're all sharing experiences, we're sharing protocols, we're all learning from each other, and these relationships are invaluable. So uh, I, I can't, I don't want to overstate um, the impact LAPD has had on other units because those other units have uh, the exact same impact on us. If, if we learn from them, even something small that makes us that much better next time, um, that, that's something that we wouldn't have if we weren't fortunate, fortunate enough to have these open lines of communications and, and this, and this, uh, I, I want to call it professional, but I think it's more of a friendship. And so when friends are sharing about uh, ways to do things better, it's the most effective way for us to grow. Outstanding. Yeah, I, I've, uh, you know, I've noticed that. And you learn from everybody. I Every single time I'm on the range, I don't care if it's a basic student, I'm going to learn something. If nothing else, what not to do or how to avoid something. But it's the same thing with, with teams and sharing that friendship, that bonding is absolutely essential. And it really does create a very very professional atmosphere in the long run. So I want to move on if I can. And that is that a common misconception among the public, and I get this question all the time. Well, when you're in SWAT, you can shoot just about hose about everything that's downrange if you don't like it. Uh, I was wondering just how far from the truth is it that SWAT officers can do whatever they want in terms of deadly force, uh, as opposed to say a line officer, a regular police officer. Is that true? So, can do whatever they want? No, absolutely not. Um, that is that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, LAPD SWAT, like all law enforcement entities, uh, adheres to all state and federal law, constitutional law, case law, department policy, all relative to use of force. Our, our standard, like all law enforcement, is the objectively reasonable standard. Um, for again, for those that are institutionalized, Graham versus Connor. Uh, the recently enacted Assembly Bill 392, and, and in rough summation, an officer can use deadly force to defend life when he or she believes it is necessary. Um, so officers use force that is objectively reasonable under the totality of the circumstances. And that's whether it's a firm grip or all the way up to using deadly force. And LAPD SWAT adheres to all of that. So rather than get into... Um, you know, law enforcement uses force to overcome resistance, affect arrest, prevent escape, uh, deadly force uh, in defense of deadly threats to officers and citizens and, and the things that, that we all know. But when we as LAPD SWAT are forced to use force, we actually undergo more scrutiny than traditional police resources because of the greater expectation that we have more equipment, more training, and should therefore 
be able to avoid having to use force. So the fact of the matter is that, that when you consider the criteria that must be met for LAPD SWAT to deploy, consider the gravity of the incidents, uh, we use force of any kind in less than 10% of the incidents and deadly force in less than 1% of the incidents. And in our 53-year history, we've handled over 6,000 incidents as a platoon, and those statistics remain consistent. So we don't have carte blanche to just use force however we want. And that, that Hollywood image of SWAT uh, uh, destroying the building and shooting everybody and getting in the truck and driving away couldn't be further from the truth. Outstanding. Uh, that's uh, that brilliant, brilliant response. I remember the very first day when I was in SWAT walking in a metro, I just received all my gear from the vault. Jack Schmidt and Ron McCarthy grabbed me, pinned me against the wall. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Ron McCarthy was at the time 20 David. He was a senior sergeant, kind of legendary figure, was in the SLA shootout. I believe the Black Panther shootout, but definitely the SLA shootout. And he pinned me up against the wall uh, physically and said, don't you ever do anything that brings discredit or shame upon this unit. You understand me, Reitz? And I mean, he was dead serious. And I, I went, oh, my God, this is a different world. And. I think, you know, having worked in deadly force cases uh, for the last over three decades in defending officers, the interesting thing is the SWAT uh, units where I've had to defend them or a SWAT mission, their ability to articulate their actions is far superior to that of an average line officer simply due to training and simply due to the selection process. And I think what you expounded on there about people not understanding that just because you think you can shoot doesn't mean you can, or just because you can, should you? In other words, when it's kind of what I, what we term in our classes, back to the wall theory, when every other reasonable use of force option has been vacated by the suspect's actions, that's the only time that we're going to apply any time, any type of force, including up to and including deadly force. So I think uh, you articulate that very, very well. Um, Brett? So what, apropos of all of this, what do you think is the public's bis biggest misconception about SWAT? So I think, I think the public's impression of SWAT comes from Hollywood and the media. And so, so Hollywood portrays the, uh, like SWAT's, like I said, SWAT's liberal use of deadly force, property destruction, and there's no, there's little or no ramifications to get in the truck and drive away. Um, but I think the biggest thing that, that maybe the public doesn't understand is the bandwidth that's required to work SWAT. And so there are many critical traits that we desire in our personnel, right? We want it to be fit. We want it to be uh, resourceful, moral. We want it to be smart. And, um, and to kind of drive this point home, it, it makes me think of a time. Uh, so we, we have a great relationship with FBI HRT out of Quantico, as well as the LA office SWAT team, um, out of uh, out of uh, Wilshire Boulevard. And so in about 2010, I joined FBI HRT in Quantico for their selection process. And during that time, I met one of their contract assessors, and he was a psychologist. And so as, as you would expect, uh, they start off day one quite early with physical fitness tests and followed up with several other physical skills. And I forget if it was day one or day two, but early on, um, this uh, assessor tells me that we're going to give them a raw IQ test. And he said that based on the scores from the raw IQ test with 80 plus percent certainty, he'll be able to declare who's going to be the rock star and who's not going to last a day three. 
So, so much of what they do is multitasking, problem solving, assimilating information, being resourceful. Then they take that information and they put it to practical use. So then later on in, in their selection, they get the Myers-Briggs, right? The, the personality types, who's the field marshal, who's the engineer, who's the logistician. And, 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 and that changes from year to year as well, right? As education, life experience, those personality change types. So I, I don't want to digress into the whole Myers-Briggs thing, but um, I guess my message is that um, our guys are smart. And that it takes all kinds of personalities to put the best team together. So uh, a SWAT cop isn't just out of one mold. And I think that's the public's biggest misperception. Interesting, you know, because I know that in Hollywood, uh, there's always just one stellar star and he does everything. He's the breacher, negotiator. He's the guy going through the door first. He's a sniper. He's this, he's that. The rest of the guys are just kind of hangers on. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you've seen that depicted in Hollywood more than once, correct? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's part of what we, we, we do in selection is we, we look for that, that team member who can function as a team. And it's not about one person um, that's going to get all the glory. Absolutely. Uh, moving on, one of the things that I know a lot of people are gear freaks. Um, if you want to sell something, uh, you could sell a pair of boxer shorts if they were tactical gray and you call them tactical. You could sell a ton of them. And all you had to do was put a flashlight holder on it or something and Velcro. Uh, my question would be that everybody's enthralled by equipment. They like the equipment, the new stuff and everything else. How important is the equipment versus the actual individual who is utilizing that equipment? Well, so we've all seen uh, an incident where say, a, on the range, an officer with a Remy 870 out shoots an officer with a Benelli M4. And uh, we see that on more than one occasion because it's that person that is truly familiar with that piece of gear. And, and even if it appears to be archaic, um, they've mastered it. And so there are pieces of gear that are designed to give a tactical edge. And I, I, I don't argue that at all, uh, but simply owning that gear without immersion training isn't enough. So we are, we're very careful about the gear that our personnel get. We, we keep it basic, but um, we also know that in, in kind of a variation of Jeff Cooper quote, just because you're holding guitar doesn't make you a rock star is that <laughs> when you get this gear, when you, when you get this gear, whether it's a firearm or a, some other thing that attaches to you, that you need to know how to use it properly and, and truly master it. Absolutely. I will say one thing for our listeners. If you've ever watched, uh, and I use this, this is what I call, I've assigned names to different techniques, but if you've ever used a shotgun, whether it be a Benelli or an 870 or any other variant shotgun, if you have a side saddle, that's where additional rounds for the shotgun are held to the left side, uh, the opposing side of the breech of the shotgun. Uh, people will hold, have the shells usually at six rounds of shotgun, 12 gauge. And I watched Lee once and I don't know where he came up with this. And this is why I call it the McMillian reload. And I watched him load with eye watering speed from an open breech. In other words, no round in the chamber, bolt locked to the rear, no rounds in the magazine off the side saddle in and it's a matter of inverting your hand and pushing up and grabbing and coming into the side. And if you've ever watched him do it, it is really, really impressive. So that is the one thing which to this very day, your name has been attached to unbeknownst to you. And it's called the McMillian Reload. So there. Well, I, I learned something every day. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> like, again, you give me way too much credit. So, no, not enough, perhaps, but we'll see. Um, you know, again, uh, along the lines of equipment comes the issue of techniques. We see, and I know that when I was in D-team, 
all manner of techniques. And they're spinning, uh, there's pivoting around, they're all different positions, high ready, low ready, sewell position, all these different positions for people that are in the know that are involved in this. And the one thing I've noticed even to this day with D-Team is we use very pure, we execute when we work with weapons, very pure lines. Uh, we look for the shortest, most uh, effectual short line possible in every single manipulation. Even something as simple as drawing to low with, ready with a 1911 and doing a simple chamber check and loading. Uh, how important is it that when you look at all these advanced combat uh, things and, and all this YouTube stuff that you see out there and people, quite frankly, very, very unsafe practices, how important is it that you adhere to some real basic principles and most especially safe principles when manipulating, working with firearms, not only in a range environment, but also in a live fire format with other individuals that you're going to be going through the door with, deploying with. How important is it that we effectuate those clean lines and stay with some real basic, solid, proven, proven, documented techniques instead of getting wrapped around the axle on all the smoke and mirrors that I see this day? Well, I, I think you've uh, you've actually answered your own own question with with the question itself. I mean, it, common sense, clean line, keep it simple, keep it safe, uh, keep it things that that you can move, you can use every day effectively. Um, there are many trainers on the market who uh, they'll, they'll market themselves by having some nuance or specific thing or or just something that 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 changes uh, what has been done historically to make it their so they can put their name on it, just to be kind. Now, I'm not saying we're not open to change and evolution. We absolutely are. But we also road test everything before we adopt it and deploy it. So, um, as you said, common sense, clean line, simple, safe. Uh, but when we road test things, let's say it is a an entry technique. If it's an entry technique, of, like building entry, um, we're going to do it repeatedly. We're going to do it with a live adversary and some munitions. And we're going to see exactly how effective is this. Um, if it's a shooting technique, we're going to range test it ad nauseum. And uh, as you said, there's there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. And uh, and so I think there's enough stuff out there. I don't want to over-reveal on the topic of tactics. Although, well, like you said, most of it can be found on social media because some affirmation craving, he noticed me jackass, posts a lot more than they should. Um, and that's a very sensitive topic for me. I can't stand that. Uh, but in summation, we keep it simple. Um, it's the stuff that we will remember and can use when things get sporting. And, and those are the things that we train our personnel in. What are some of the personal sacrifices that a SWAT officer undergoes throughout his or her career? I, I guess some people would call it sacrifices, but I mean, I, I've got to say I'm, I'm the first to admit that uh, I've had a charm career from, from the very beginning to until today. Um, and, and hopefully that continues tomorrow. Um, I've been able to go places, uh, do things, meet people, uh, purely because I'm an LAPD SWAT cop and some may see the sacrifices, but I just see it as a great way to live. I love the spontaneity of this profession. Uh, you may have to, your work day kind of planned in your mind. You may have your day off planned in your mind, but if you're on standby and something kicks off, uh, you're going to go to work. And when you go to work, you get to fix a problem that won't get fixed unless you and your team fix it. So, I mean, yeah, there are interruptions to life, but uh, I, I love that spontaneity. Um, so with, with that in mind, LAPD SWAT's the last line of defense for the city of LA. So if we don't fix it, no one else will. So that's an enormous responsibility that we don't take lightly. And so that completely overshadows anything that, that I would call, call sacrifice. So 
I mean, yeah, since 1996, I've missed uh, more family gatherings, holidays, special events than I can remember. Um, but I'll also confess it's been a great escape hatch for some awkward events where I desperately wanted to leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to get out of the family Thanksgiving Day dinner, right? Yeah. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> but, uh, but, so I got a damage control. Will. I also have to say that I believe I've been there for my wife and daughter and family for all the important events. Right. Um, you know, I've, uh, if you go into dinner and you're on standby, sometimes your wife and daughter have to take a separate vehicle because you have to drive the police car or on, and, and for me, I know my daughter's had some events that, um, are over a weekend and they're a bit too far away for me to attend. And, and because I'm on standby, I have to stay home, but it, it's all a balancing act Yeah. and, and it, and it really does make for a great career. So I'm, I'm going to, I, I, I'm going to mitigate the impact of, uh, what some people may call a, a sacrifice. Yeah. I was specific, specifically thinking about those 2 a.m. call-ups, that kind of thing. <laughs> that, that's just sleep deprivation. Well, yeah. well, after I retire, I'll make up for lost sleep. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, there's nothing like showing but a call-up with a turkey drumstick sticking out of your utilities. And uh, so, yeah, it's, but, but, you know, what's amazing, I know for myself, even all the, you know, many years later, is that if something critical happens, I get a call th- three in the morning. It just goes back to for that decade in the SWAT. It's within 10 seconds. I'm fully awake and spooled up and pretty much ready to go. A little bit harder as you get older, but nonetheless, uh, that's a great skill to have. So I have a question, and that is, is it important for a civilian to understand, and we're not going to go into it in this segment, but that the rules of engagement uh, of deadly force application apply to him as well as law enforcement officer, even though they are not trained to the same standard or expected to have post-certification, which is police officer standards and training. Absolutely. And and I think that um, citizens need to understand that before they even buy a firearm. Um, You hear so many people that say, you know, it's uh, things are getting crazy in the world and I think I'm going to go buy a gun. Well, if you're going to buy a gun, uh, one, you need to know how to use that firearm efficiently. Um, and, and and properly, and attend a Scotty Reitz course and a Brett McQueen course, and 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 know what you're doing when you when you pick up that pistol. Not only the function of it, but also understand the gravity of using it against another human being in defense of your family. And so, if if people just when when I hear someone say, you know, I just went out and bought a, a gun because uh, things are dangerous out there, um, that that comes back to the old uh, uh, that Jeff Cooper quote. Or my variation of is uh, just because you're holding guitar doesn't make you a rock star. So it, it's not just holding that guitar, but it's understanding all the variations of the music that goes with it. And so that would be uh, in our circumstance with firearms. It's all of all of the law and understanding the litigation that follows as well. That you need to be able to justify that that you use that firearm in defense of life. Along that line, it's amazing that. A lot of civilians refer to accidental shootings. And as I mentioned, as we mentioned, and I know that you've mentioned, there is no such thing as an accidental shooting. All of it is negligence. And it's very important for individuals who are purchasing, and they had a record number of purchases in the last month or so due to circumstances, coronavirus, but keeping the weapons safe, keeping them locked up, understanding how to manipulate, would you consider the safe and effective use and keeping those weapons away from the rest of the family that are not skilled in their usage, would you consider that to be of primary importance at this at this time, perhaps? Oh, for sure. I think, uh, as, as, as you said, more people are buying firearms. Um, and the more that are out there, the more that they're around the home, uh, the more people need to pay attention to that. Um, and in fact, uh, 
a, um, I, I, I've heard you say on, on more than one occasion, you know, there's, there's those four firearm safety rules. Uh, you know, all guns are always loaded. You can figure out the trigger, you know, all, all that stuff. Uh, but number five is the more you're around firearms, the greater the likelihood is that you're going to violate one of those four basic firearm safety rules. If you never touch a firearm, you're never going to have to worry about a negligent discharge or, or, or shooting somebody you shouldn't shoot or misidentifying a target. Um, so the more firearms that are out there, the more important it is that people pay attention to these things. Thank you very much. <clears throat> How has the pandemic affected SWAT or the operation of the department in general? So um, as far as the LAPD, I mean, there, there are several notices that have come out and, and, uh, and I'll, I'll confess I haven't committed them all to memory, but um, a couple things that the department's doing is uh, the, the gyms at the various stations. Um, they're not allowed to have more than 10 at a time in those, in those gyms. And there's, there's, uh, you know, wet wipes, more wet wipes, uh, you know, alcohol based wet wipes than, than you've ever seen in your life around, around police stations. And then that carries out to the, the field activities and wiping down the police cars and, and those patrol officers are, are wearing their, their face, well, not just patrol, but anyone who's having field contacts wears face masks. And so, um, so it, it, it's definitely impacted the, the day-to-day life of, of our organization. And then as far as, as far as SWAT's concerned, um, you know, we actually have expected an uptick in, in, in domestic based SWAT incidents and things like that. Uh, although our, our SWAT work has continued throughout this pandemic, uh, it, it's not based on what you would think of, uh, you know, cabin fever and, and, you know, somebody sick, sick of being in the, in the same house with their mate for too long. So our, our, our work has just remained regular SWAT work, which which is actually also odd when whenever something big happens. I remember like during 9-11 um, with there's big earthquakes or all the fires, it, you know, all, all the folks that are doing things that are really bad that merit SWAT response, they kind of quit doing that for a while. It almost seems like they're paying attention to the news and they're just not out doing crime. Mm-hmm. But uh, during this uh, during the pandemic, uh, we've been business as usual. In fact, we've we've been very busy. And so it, it's odd that something with the gravity of this pandemic hasn't had a different effect on our day-to-day deployments. Something that I personally would like to know, what, is you, what are your basic duties as lieutenant in the SWAT? So it, it starts with, uh, obviously, you know, uh, management of all the personnel. But if we, if we come down to, I'll, I'll speak specific to a SWAT incident. And so uh, I mentioned my partner, Ruben Lopez, he and I, uh, our platoon has, uh, we have off hour standby where uh, our regular work day is, you know, nine hours a day. And then when we're in those remaining 15 hours, we have a standby list and that standby list are those personnel that are going to respond to anything that kicks off that, that, that merits our deployment. And so those deployments start with the Lieutenant that's on standby that night. So if it's me and if it's two o'clock in the morning, there's a, a field incident that has, um, that has kicked off and there's an incident commander at that field incident and they determine that it's going to merit some SWAT deployment, then they will call Metro desk and Metro desk will then call the, uh, the standby Lieutenant. And then I get that call. And now I, I shuffle down the, down the carpet to my desk in my underwear and I grab a pen and a piece of paper and I talk to the incident commander and I get all the basics of what they have. And first I have to make sure that it merits a, a SWAT response. And, and sometimes it does. And, and sometimes we can resolve it through uh, making some tactical suggestions uh, over the phone. And, and then uh, life continues. Uh, if it merits SWAT response, then uh, the next thing I'll do, if it's something that is truly emergent, a hostage incident, um, I'll deploy the personnel and I'll make notifications while we're en route. 
if it's a traditional barricade where containment's tight, everybody's safe, and we got a bad guy that's not, been, you know, hasn't submitted to arrest, and he's believed to be armed, and, and he's committed a crime, then I'm going to notify our chain of command. I'm going to make them aware of what we have, um, and then we, we agree that it, it merits SWAT response. And then I notify uh, what would be the sergeant and the element leader that are going to be primary for handling that incident. I'll give them a phone call and I'll give them a, a good narrative of uh, what, what I heard during the screening and what I understand of, of what we're rolling into. Then I'll call back Metro Desk and they'll activate the standby list. Um, there's a command post in the field. Our guys have their, their take-home cars and all their gear. So we don't go to the command first and grab our cars and gear and then go. We go directly to the job. So we'll, we'll roll straight, straight to the job site. And then once I'm at, at, the, uh, at the job site, then it's uh, management of personnel and resources and then keeping the incident commander, who is going to be the geographic division commanding officer, and uh, keep them uh, apprised of, of our, our next steps. And we're going to relieve our relief control personnel. And we have uh, you know, containment of our personnel and, then, and what our next um, tactical decisions are to include negotiations and, and if we're going to deliver chemical agents, um, what, uh, what the profile for that gas deployment or chemical agent deployment will be. And we'll, uh, we'll all coordinate through the chains of command. The chains of command, I use plural because there's a chain of command for that geographic division where the incident is occurring. And then there's the metropolitan division chain of command, which includes our commanding officer and up through our bureau, which would be a commander, deputy chief. And, and, um, everybody is at this command post and, and we're all ensuring that what we're doing, uh, makes sense. And then ultimately we're going to, going to try and resolve this in the uh, least confrontational manner possible and take the suspect into custody and get the, get the community back to normalcy as soon as possible. So right. fairly simple, streamlined process. <laughs> <laughs> Very simple. Yeah. I, I didn't want to, it is, there's yeah. a lot of moving parts to it. I don't want to get you bogged down in phone calls, but, um, but yeah, it takes it. There, there's a lot to meeting the criteria for SWAT to respond. It's not just, you know, Hey, give Lee a call and, and he'll send the guys. It's not quite that simple. Understandably. So. If you were not a Los Angeles police officer, SWAT member, what other profession would you have pursued? So th there's a whole world of great stuff to do out there. But I I've got to say, I've, I've died and gone to police heaven. So <laughs> I can't believe I get to do what I get to do. So I think I should just stick with this. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, uh, I, I enjoy a variety of challenges. And there, there are so many great professions out there. And um, I'm not sure what I do, but uh, after I retire in the next uh, six or seven years, um, maybe I'll look into a second career. Great. Okay. Do, you, do you have any hobbies that you really enjoy doing? So my, my biggest hobby is, uh, is our daughter. Um, she's 15. She's amazing. And um, I just like stalking her. And at some point, she, she, oh my God. <laughs> sure she really appreciates that. That's, that's beautiful. She, she does. She, she, yeah. she does. Yeah. That's, it, it's a father's love. Yeah. Her, her mother and I, uh, we just, we just love being parents. And, and um, I, I know this doesn't last forever. So as uh, she moves on to college and her life and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue to stalk her, but then I'll, I'm sure I'll pick up a hobby here and there, but I've always, but everything I do now is with her anyway. It's yeah. all part of, uh, you know, being dad and teaching her how to ride a motorbike and teach her how to rock climb and, and, uh, getting her out on the range with Scott and, and make sure she knows the uh, stamp script, side alignment, type picture, trigger control, breathing and follow through and all the things, all the things that our children are supposed to know. Yeah, you, you have, I, you know, oh, you have an amazing family that you really do. Priceless. You have an amazing family. Um, uh, you know, I, I said this to Scott this morning and it's something that ju I just remembered 
And I may be mistaken, but did you come to us many years ago to a class that we had when we were on the Tom George range, when we were California pistol craft? Yes, I, I did. And, and I think I actually have the certificate from that course. I believe Oh my goodness! there's probably a handgun course in there and there's probably a shotgun course in there somewhere. Okay. I thought it was rifle for some reason, but maybe I was mistaken, but it was probably the early nineties perhaps. Is that possible? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I went to Metro in 94 and I, I took a couple of your courses before I, I went into Metro. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Wow. great memory. Great memory. And and there may be, there probably is a rifle course in there somewhere. I'm yeah. not, not too proud to, to do some training. So yeah, we've known you for, for a number of years. It's been, you know, been wonderful. You have, a, as I said, you have a wonderful, wonderful family, wonderful wife and daughter. Um, so it's been, you know, it's been great knowing you. I mean, we've, we've had, you know, great times and, and, uh, you know, please keep up the good work because you are doing an outstanding job. I know the guys really, really love you, and that's really saying something. I, I know you know you're very humble, uh, but you're just a very impressive individual. It's just it's amazing to watch you progress through the years. When I first saw you, you know, and I've come across a lot of people, a lot of young officers. In fact, when we were training Marines, eventually some of the Marines down in First Force Recon, when we were training them later on gain it into SWAT, and you're one of the exceptions that really, I mean, these guys are all great guys, but you're really stellar. Is there anything else you'd like to add before you, uh, before you sign off with us? You know what? Um, so you've, you've been way too kind and complimentary to me, and, and, uh, and I, I can't thank you enough for that. But I, I also need to say that, and I, I think we've had the conversation a time or two, but you've been a mentor of mine for nearly three decades. And I, I can't thank you enough for the years of guidance for all you do for You've done for me, you do for law enforcement, you do for military worldwide. Um, you are uh, selfless, you're a patriot, uh, you genuinely care. And, and there's a lot of people in your business that don't genuinely care. Um, they're just out to make a buck. But you genuinely care and immerse yourself in all of it. So just God bless you and your family for all you do. Oh, thank you. And, um, you know, I, I tell you what, it's what a special guest for us to have on With Deadly Force as our first ever guest is Lieutenant Lee McMillan, LAPD SWAT. Lee, thank you so very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Truly my honor. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of With Deadly Force podcast. To stay in touch, follow us on social media at International Tactical. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or for any topics you would like us to discuss, send an email to podcast at with deadlyforce.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can help support the podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Thank you and stay safe. <laughs>